You're listening to the Gate Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Today we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the book of Daniel. And um, we'll actually be getting a little bit more of a history lesson today. So it'll be a little bit different than usual. Um, Because as we make our way into chapter 5, finally we'll be all of a sudden introduced to a bunch of new people, new characters that we've never seen or talked about before. Um, So we're going to get some historical context of who these people are this week, and then uh, there'll be a little bit of a message following that. But uh, we're going to get part two of this passage next week as we dig deeper into the theological meaning and and practical lessons that we can glean from it. So this is is going to be like a two-parter. So today will be... The, the intro, the historical context, and uh, we'll be continuing it next week. Um, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 12. Daniel 5, 1 to 12. All right. And it says... King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be bought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then the king, Belshazzar, was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. It's the word of the Lord. All right, so most of you have probably heard of the expression, the writing on the wall, right? This, this is the passage where this figure of speech actually finds its origin. Um, on that end, I remember when I used to work as a, a purchaser for a cleaning supply company, and this was 10 years ago now, crazy to think how the time go, time flies. Uh, anyways, um, 
in the office, we, we started to hear about how some of the, the, the other offices and the other company branches or, or stores around the country were, were starting to shut down. And this was due to the failing economy. And of course, it didn't take long for, for it to become obvious that our store would soon be next. In other words, we all saw the writing on the wall. Right? We, mostly everyone in our office saw the signs that we'd soon be out of a job too. And since Audrey and I had just bought a house recently, uh, we had just had a, had a baby a couple years before that, and so I had no choice but to respond proactively to the writing on the wall. I couldn't, I couldn't ignore the writing on the wall, so I, I freshened up my resume, I, I, I looked for jobs, I even checked out the college and university to see if I could get a second degree and start a new career, but that was all worthless anyways because God's timing is perfect and I ended up getting a job here the same month that I got laid off from there. And so that worked out. But um, anyways, many people today fail to see the writing on the wall and respond to it, right? And, and, and I do too sometimes. We, we ignore the writing on the wall. We don't want to see it or we run from it, right? Um, another example is during the house, housing market crash, a few years back, many economists warned banks of their inevitable doom, but most of the banks plugged their ears as they rolled around on their money, right, and, and just sang la, 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 to drown out the noise, right? And, and so they kept lending irresponsibly, and the market crashed. Uh, obviously, that's an oversimplification of what happened, but the point is the same. Are we paying attention to the writing on the wall? Are we paying attention to the writing on the wall. And in the passage this morning, we're introduced to a guy named Belshazzar, whom the book of Daniel refers to as the current king of Babylon. And this is the last night of his life. Yes, spoiler, spoiler alert, at the end of the evening, at the end of this passage, he dies. Why? Well, there are many reasons for this, which we'll discuss today and mostly next week. But ultimately, it's because he refuses to see or acknowledge the writing on the wall, both metaphorically and literally. Uh, but as I said earlier, it's, it, it helps to, to we, we need to understand who this guy is and what's currently happening. Um, because last week, if you'll remember, if you were here last week, we, we ended chapter 4 on a really positive, uplifting note. King Nebuchadnezzar had just gone through this journey of being humbled and, and, had, and then come out of that and had confessed God as a king of kings. And so that, that was really exciting. And yay, God, God's the king of kings and the king of Babylon is following him now. It's great. But then as we step into chapter 6, all of a sudden, or sorry, chapter 4, all of a sudden we're, we're talking about different people. Chapter five. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, one of the chapters. As we step into this, this chapter this morning, <laughs> all of a sudden, we're, we're talking about different people, right? And these people aren't following God at all. They're, they're partying and, and profaning the vessels taken from God's temple. And there's no timeline or explanation of, of these people. There's new characters. Where did they come from? Uh, how did they show up? Who are they? And, and first of all, this actually tells us that the author of Daniel is less concerned with dates and historical explanations than we might be today. Uh, we obsess over those things. Uh, but that's not the purpose of, of why he wrote that. Um, 
Instead, what's supposed to be important for the reader is, is God's purposes and the themes that we can learn from and how it fits into the overarching story of Daniel and of the whole Bible in general. So it's written like this on purpose. It's also likely that the original readers of the book of Daniel would have already had a general knowledge of the information anyway and, and wouldn't have actually required extra detail. But since we're not the, the originally intended readers of the book or familiar with how the world worked 2,500 years ago, uh, it does help us uh, to, to, to jump into the historical context, right? Um, it will help us to make sense of what's going on if we can get some context of the chapter and understand who these people are within history. Um, and I should mention on that note that for almost 2,000 years, it was widely accepted and argued among scholars, especially the biblical critics, that Belshazzar, this, this guy we're introduced to in the passage, that Belshazzar wasn't actually a real person because there wasn't any known historical record of him. And most importantly, he wasn't listed as a king of Babylon in any of uh, uh, non-biblical accounts. Um, so according to historical documents, if we go through who the kings were of Babylon, the next king of Babylon to follow King Nebuchadnezzar, was his son. His name was Amel Marduk. And Marduk is the, is the, the god, the main god of the, the Babylonians. So he's named after the, the god. Amel Marduk. And he reigned for two years. But then he was murdered. And he was murdered by King Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, Neraglissar. And, and so Neraglissar took the throne for six years until he died. And then his son, Labashi Marduk, took over power in 556. BCE, well, and he was still a minor though, he was a child. And unfortunately, in the same year that he was given the throne, he also lost the throne because he was betrayed and murdered as a child through a conspiracy which was arranged by a guy named Nabonidus, who then took over the throne himself and reigned from 556 to 539 BCE. So Nabonidus, we need to remember that name. And it's not clear if Nabonidus was related to Nebuchadnezzar, or if he had any legal right to the throne at all. Most likely he didn't, but regardless, he took it anyways. That was his plan. Um, it's possible that he married Nebuchadnezzar's granddaughter to give him legitimacy as king, but that's just a theory, but it's possible. Um, so if we take a step back, if, and, and just by seeing the illegitimate succession of kings... We can already see the declining morality of Babylon since King Nebuchadnezzar's death, right? Everyone's murdering each other to take the throne. It's, it's, it's declining, right? And, and according to history then, uh, along with the, the events of Daniel 5, we have to understand as well that it was Nabonidus, not Belshazzar, who would have been the actual king of Babylon at the time of this story, at the time of Daniel chapter 5. I got the number right this time. So Nabonidus was the king. This information had led many to think that the author of Daniel 5 um, was either mixing up names or actually just making all of this up as some sort of fable or lesson for us to learn from. Um, but as archaeology seems to, to continue to prove time and time again, we can trust the Bible. Because in 1879, 
archaeologist, discovered what has come to be known as the Cyrus Cylinder. And if you you want to throw that picture up there, that's pretty cool here. This is a cuneiform script, so it's like in in a cylinder. It's called a cuneiform script, and this was discovered in the ruins of Babylon Babylon in Mesopotamia, and it actually contains plenty of information about the 6th century, which is the time of Daniel 5, uh, and it includes details about King Nabonidus and his oldest son. And guess what his name is? Belshazzar. Possibly his adopted son. Um, Around that same year, in 1879, another tablet discovered, that was previously discovered in Babylon and now known as the Nabonidus Chronicle was acquired by scholars in England and studied more closely. And if you want to show a picture of that one, there it is. It's also pretty neat, eh? Um, so this tablet is actually a detailed year-by-year historical account of King Nabonidus by the priests of Marduk. Now that, uh, again, Marduk was the god of the Babylons. The priests of Marduk it seems like they didn't like Nabonidus, um, and so it's kind of written from that kind of perspective. But still, it seems pretty accurate. And it also contained information about Nabonidus' son, uh, who in the tablet is, is written as Belshar-Usser, which in our translations would be Belshazzar. So that's pretty neat. So because of these two discoveries, it's now widely accepted that not only did Belshazzar exist, but that he spent time as king regent on the throne of Babylon in his father's stead. This was due to the fact that his father, King Nabonidus, was very unliked in Babylon. I mean, he murdered a child to take the throne. So that makes sense. Um, So he's very unliked, and therefore he chose to, to leave, and he set up his palace in Arabia, which is another territory that they controlled. And so he he left, and he was barely ever in Babylon. And so, while not officially a king, for all intents and purposes, Belshazzar, his son, was the de facto ruler, and most likely was even referred to over time just as the king by by his vassals, because Nabonidus was never around anyways, which is possibly, probably why he was called a king in the passage we're reading this morning. And it's also no wonder, then, that Belshazzar is having a party and throwing a crazy feast I mean, if we think about it, he's basically been given all the wealth and prestige and entitlement of the empire of Babylon without the responsibility. To put it simply, he's a spoiled rich kid, right? Um, I should also mention that it's um, generally accepted that Nabonidus' mother who was the high, priest, high priestess of Nana, whatever that means, was also left in his stead as well. And so she's most likely the queen that's mentioned in this passage who counsels Belshazzar to seek out Daniel. It, it could also be Belshazzar's wife, but there's, we don't know. But most likely it's, it's uh, Belshazzar's grandma, who's, who's the queen mother at the time. So she's probably also the one running the affairs of the kingdom while Belshazzar gets his kicked, kicks, but that's just my own theory. Um, speaking of which... It's, it's not often that, that we get to know the exact dates of biblical events, unless, of course, the, the passage specifically tells us. But we can wager a guess that the events in Daniel 5 take place on or around the month of October in the year 539 BCE. And that's because that's when the forces of the Medo-Persian Empire 
led by Cyrus the Great, finally besiege and take control of the city of Babylon, which leads to their conquering of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Uh, as it says in Daniel 5, 30 to 31, here's the spoiler for next week, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. So it's not clear how Belshazzar dies. Maybe he dies fighting in a battle. Uh, Maybe he's captured and executed by the Medes and Persians. We don't know how he dies, but he dies. And and just kind of back up a bit, just so we know who the Medo-Persians are, they're from the country that we now call Iran. And in case we forgot, the ruins of Babylon are are in Iraq. So there's never been much peace in the Middle East, right? So ultimately, this passage is not only the story of Belshazzar's destruction, but also the destruction of the Babylonian Empire, which you might remember was all predicted to happen by Daniel when he interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream from God in Daniel 2. So God knew this was going to happen. God told Nebuchadnezzar this was going to happen, and it happened. I should mention quickly as well that that another unknown figure that's mentioned in this passage that we just read, uh, in that verse we just read, is a man named Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede. Nobody really knows who this is. And of course, like everything else having to do with the book of Daniel, there are many theories out there. And it's convoluted and confusing. Um, And some even question whether he even existed just like they question if Belshazzar existed. Though recently scholars have have come to a a general agreement that the name Darius, which means Lord in Median, is is actually a throne name. So that's actually not actually his real name. For example, my name is Gregory. Nice to meet you. Uh, Naturally then, I was curious a couple of, of years ago about why in the world there were so many popes named Gregory. Like, how is that possible that all these Gregories are the ones that are becoming these popes, right? Uh, how, could, how could they all have the same name? What's going on there? And am I going to become a pope? Um, <laughs> so when I looked it up, I learned that Gregory, obviously, isn't their real name. That wasn't their real given name, but rather a name chosen or given to them uh, upon becoming a pope, right? It's It's a to carry on tradition, right? Uh, it was their papal name, basically. And, and that makes more sense. Um, in the same way, the name Darius seems to have uh, been given to some of the kings in, in Median uh, territory as, as a throne name. From this perspective then, and, and according to more recent scholar, scholarly studies, again, not everyone agrees on this, uh, but it's possible then that Darius the Mede is referring to Caesarius II, who was king of the Medes at that time and would have been in his 60s. And so, and for some reason, they give his age. And so that actually fits. Um, there's a, some, a lot of other evidence that makes him fit as, as, as being Darius the Mede as well. So it's, it's likely then, whoever this person was, that, that he would have split the rule of the Babylonian Empire with Cyrus of Persia, because this is a Medo-Persian attack across the nations. They're, they're taking over the world right now, and they're working together. So it would make sense that they would split the rule of Babylon as co-regents until his own death 
which was two years later. So this splitting of the kingdom is actually prophesied by Daniel later in this passage to Belshazzar. He said, your, your kingdom's going to be split in two between the, Medo, the Medes and the Persians. Anyways, getting back to, to, to what this all tells us, first of all, is that Belshazzar, who's the de facto king, what he's decided to do is throw a huge giant party, it's a giant feast, even as his enemies stood outside the walls of Babylon. I don't know about you, but if, you know, your, your neighborhood or your house was being attacked by a bunch of people, I don't think you'd throw a party, would you? I don't, but that's what he decides to do. So talk about ignoring the writing on the walls, right? The walls of the city were actually being besieged and probably had been for at least a month and maybe, as some historians think, maybe four months. And to top it off, his father, Nabonidus, who's the actual king, had already lost a huge battle by this time to the Persian army and was being held prisoner by them. So the battle's raging through the empire. Death and destruction are at his front door. And yet Belshazzar decides to put on this big feast. He decides to throw a party, which... Um, children, plug your ears, I guess, um, was more likely a drunken orgy, to be honest, if you know Babylonian culture. Um, and this was all to impress and indulge all the nobility, a thousand of them, to be precise. So, so if we think about all this, what does that say about him? What does that say about Belshazzar? What's he thinking? Right? And maybe he thinks that if he, if he drinks and parties the night away, then maybe his problems will go away too. Like this is some, some form of escapism or, or, or his way of avoiding having to do something difficult. Maybe he thinks his, his grandma, the queen mother, is going to solve all the problems for him. Or maybe he's become so arrogant and prideful, so consumed with his own reputation and self-indulgence, that he's tuned out the danger around him. He cares more about his reputation in front of all the nobles than he does about his personal safety. That's kind of like Instagram influencers today, right? Who in the name of reputation and in increasing their followers accidentally break their legs or kill themselves, falling off balconies, attempting to get that perfect picture, right? They care more about their reputation than their personal safety. Or maybe he's so unsure of what to do and caught up in such pressure and anxiety that he's trying to put on a veneer of self-confidence in front of all the nobles. Or maybe he's living in a false sense of safety and entitlement or security through the comforts, idols, and wealth of Babylon. So he feels invincible or untouchable. Maybe it's all of the above. Whatever the case it's obvious that he's acting in foolishness here. And he's dragging the whole city and empire of Babylon down with him. And the irony here, of course, is that the very things he's using to, to avoid or, or distract him from the danger um, of death are the very things that are leading to his destruction. He's doing the Persian army a favor here by acting a fool and seeking pleasure over responsibility. But I think this is, this is actually where we need to step back and realize that our culture is not so far from this. 
Not everything's horrible. So don't get me wrong here, but in our Western society, let's be honest, we've become so entitled and accustomed to our wealth, our comforts, our self-indulgences, our instant gratification, our consumerism, our entertainment, which includes our Netflix and our social media and our so-called political, sexual, and expressive freedoms, that this has all given us a false sense of security and satisfaction and even arrogance. Mark Sayers calls this a consumer culture, and he writes, Consumer culture creates in us a mentality of toxic entitlement. The sense that we can have it all, but without struggle or cost. Consumer culture disciples us to change our external situation through purchasing to bring pleasure, meaning, and happiness to our inner world. Consumer culture is risk-averse. It teaches us to run from responsibility. We see Belshazzar is doing that. To run from responsibility and commitment. The contemporary life script is to arrange a life that delivers constant pleasurable feelings to keep the social and psychic borders up, to keep negative feelings outside. And so that's kind of the culture that, that, we, that we all live in. And, and as we worship at the feet of this, this false gospel and these false idols of wealth, pleasure, and self-gratification, what happens is we then become distracted and blinded to the writing on the wall. We, we, we avoid or, or, or either we become blinded to the dangers lurking outside our front door or beyond our borders or even in seeing the inevitable damage of the very things we've placed our trust and desires in. Right? What's the, what's the problem with being entertained all the time? What's the problem with being consumed by that? Well, I'll give you an example. Recently in the news, I learned that a couple, you might have heard about this, I learned that a couple was arrested for playing an online video game for so long that they neglected to feed their children. People saw their stream and saw malnourished children behind them. And so they reported them to the police. And don't get me wrong, I'm all right with playing some video games and enjoying other forms of entertainment sometimes in moderation, right? But, I mean, as Christians, we're allowed to enjoy creation and, and have fun sometimes. But when it, when it becomes an idol and an addiction, when it's become something you choose over your own children or your relationships or as unhealthy escapism to avoid your problems or your issues in life, that's a problem, right? And, and obviously that's an extreme example, but think of how often we look at our phones and check our Instagrams whether it's to satisfy our addiction or, or in our fear of missing out, instead of being present in the moment. Or think of how often as students we choose to go party instead of study. Right? Or how often married individuals these days choose to watch porn or romantic movies in order to satiate their selfish desires, instead of actually spending time with their spouse or working on their real-life relationships. Right? The consumer culture, partying with Belshazzar and indulging in ourselves, is easier than facing our issues and fighting our battles. 
But ultimately, it's empty. Ultimately, it's destructive. And as Christians, as as strangers and exiles living in this world, in this culture, it's easy for us to get sucked into it. Right? It's definitely tempting to choose instant gratification and, and selfishness over suffering for Christ. It's in our sinful nature. And I, and I would argue that we, we have done that and we do do this. Broadly speaking, as us Western Christians have certainly, certainly become too comfortable and distracted. And I'm, I'm talking to myself here too. We've definitely become lazy in our faith. We've definitely become self-serving consumers rather than sacrificial contenders for God. Fortunately for us, God doesn't give up on us. Jesus didn't die on the cross to abandon us, so there's always grace. But yet he does call us to die to ourselves and take up our cross as well, to crucify the flesh, so to speak, and walk by the Spirit. To be alert. First Peter 4 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Put on the armor of God, right? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past, this is who we used to be before we knew Christ, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Hanging out with Belshazzar. And then in verse 7 it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then again in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we can look at Belshazzar and say, You fool! The Persians are about to kill you! But you know what? He's already dead like 2,500 years ago, so we can't talk to him. Instead, let's look in the mirror ourselves. Let's remind ourselves that the enemy is also at our gates as well. As Christians, we're in the middle of a battle. And, and not a physical one like the Babylonians and Persians, but definitely a spiritual one. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so if we become lazy in our faith, if we become lazy in this or allow ourselves to become distracted or addicted to our consumer culture, indulging in our flesh uh, instead of contending for God and walking by the Spirit, instead of building one another up, instead of praying for one another, then we're only doing the enemy a favor. We're giving him a foothold and we're, and we're allowing ourselves to be caught off guard. 
the good news for us is that Jesus has defeated the enemy and the powers at the cross through his de- death and resurrection. And so ultimately in Christ, for those who believe in him, their, their attacks and their schemes are powerless against us. But in the same vein, we can't stop an enemy that we don't see coming if we're not paying attention. In fact, the devil's perfectly happy watching us squander away our days. Right? He's, he's perfectly happy watching us avoid our calling as Christians, watching us avoid our calling as Christians to wage war on sin and darkness with the message of the gospel, indulging instead in our, our pride and the selfish desires of our flesh, binge-watching three seasons of Game of Thrones while our Bibles and hymns collect dust on the shelves, attempting to cheer ourselves up with a, with a shopping spree instead of taking our burdens and shame to the cross. And so this, this is a battle between the spirit and the flesh. As Mark Sayers again writes, living by the spirit then in a world of flesh is our exile. Ultimately then what this all comes down to is, is who or what we worship and trust in. Right? This, is, this is about the object of our affection and our faith and our satisfaction. Because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. On that note, as, as we read earlier, in the midst of Belshazzar's arrogance and, and drunkenness, he, he boldly and rashly decides to step things up a notch in the party. I don't know, maybe things got a little boring or something. Or maybe he's trying to show off, prove how cool or crazy he is. Anyways... He asks for the vessels from the Jewish temple of God to be brought in. And, and, and these, these vessels, these cups, were, were taken from Jerusalem almost 70 years earlier, along with the exiles. We read about that in Daniel 1. And these, these came from the temple of God, so they represent his, his presence, right? And so, and, and, but he called them out just so that they can use them to drink wine out of, and also so that they could worship their gods and idols with them, drink to the gods. I don't know what was going on there. But whatever it was, this was a blatant act of blasphemy against God. And so it was at that very moment in which the writing on the wall was no longer a metaphor, but rather literal. And in a bizarre display, super weird, we all agree, a hand (laughs) comes out of nowhere and in the brightest place in the room wrote a message on the wall for Belshazzar and all of Babylon to see. And of course, they couldn't read it, and they needed Daniel to come in to interpret it. We'll talk more about that next week. But the point for now is that God showed up, and he showed up in judgment, and Belshazzar didn't expect it. He was so caught up in his self-indulgence and arrogance that he wasn't prepared for his enemies, much less for God to show up. And then, in his fear... He loses all the color in his face, right? He wets his pants, which that seems to imply. His muscles gave out. His knees knocked together, right? He's shaking like Scooby-Doo does when he's seen a ghost, you know? Only this wasn't a ghost. It was the Holy Ghost. It was the presence of God coming in judgment. And Jesus warns us of this very thing in Matthew 24, 42 to 51. Let's know what Jesus says here. He says, therefore, stay awake. 
right? Or as it says in Peter, sober-minded and alert, right? On your guard. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, Oh, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in, at an hour he does not know, be caught red-handed, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see Belshazzar, just like the abusive and arrogant servant in Jesus' parable here, was so caught up in his sin and arrogance and debauchery that he wasn't ready for God to show up. He didn't see it coming. And it was his end. Here's the question for us, though. Are, are we ready? If Jesus comes today, will he find faith on this earth? Will he find us watching for him and preparing our hearts for his return and serving one another and loving one another? And counting others is more significant than ourselves. Will he find us walking in holiness? And this is the ultimate call for us as exiles. To be ready. To be alert. To be in the world but not of it. To proclaim Christ in the sinful world. To bring light into the darkness instead of being consumed by it. As it says in Thessalonians, we're children of the night and of the day. We no longer belong to the darkness and the night. We're called to walk in the spirit and not by the flesh. To remain alert for not only the schemes of the enemy, but to live faithfully for Jesus until he comes again. So examine yourselves this morning. Check your hearts. Who are we following? Who are we placing our trust in? Are we caught up in the, in the consumer culture? Or are we living for God? 